Blog Talk Radio. Vegan, 
and he was known for one time uh, being a having a ravenous um, appetite for hamburgers, like our present uh, present president uh, Barack Obama. Um, so, you know, needless to say, you have uh, um, Russell Simmons in the hip hop community, and just a host of people who are uh, of various persuasions in terms of their philosophy, lifestyle. Uh, who are becoming vegetarians or who have been and, uh, if, if you will, came out of the closet, <laughs> as it were, and said, look, yes, I'm a vegetarian. I'm going to uh, admit it and promote it and be proud of it. So, yes, indeed, I am one who takes pride in, in, in having the uh, inclination to be a vegetarian, and it has done wonders for my life. You know, I've cleaned up my act my act considerably. I used to drink alcohol and, and indulge in things that were not healthy, and indeed eating pork time and uh, and 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 sodas and you know the beer and the alcohol, um, overcooking the food when we did eat supposedly a good meal. Um, and if those of us who come from the south know what I mean. Those of us who are of African descent, uh, who have uh, followed the path of our ancestors, especially those of us who were our ancestors who were enslaved and who were forced to eat the remnants of the so-called slave master, uh, the enslaver, the captor, as it were, uh, have actually carried on from generation to generation a certain lifestyle in terms of diet of eating certain foods that were deemed not are deemed today not to be healthy for us. But because of habit, because of tradition, because of it being imbued in our psyche, uh, we, in some of our circles, consider it to be okay to eat certain foods which we know, indeed, may be not healthy for us. And then, of course, many of us who are not aware at all that the food is not healthy uh, there's a whole process that, which I will share with you later on in the show and in the shows to follow. Uh, we probably will be dedicating at least uh, three to four succeeding shows uh, concentrating on this book, Food for the Spirit, and the whole concept of vegetarianism, and just having a dialogue, as it were, sharing our thoughts, sharing our sentiments in terms of uh, what you, the listening audience, feels about this particular uh, lifestyle, and of course, those of you who are in the chat room, please feel free to share your thoughts. And anyone who uh, has called in, uh, please feel free to uh, push the number one button, uh, the number one, and that will indicate to me that you wish to share your thoughts with us. So, without any further ado, I'm going to start uh, reading a few excerpts from uh, the book. Uh, food for the Spirit, and I'm going to start off with the forward. Uh, and Stephen starts off by saying, people have been eating animals since at least the Ice Age, when some anthropologists say our early ancestors abandoned a plant-oriented diet in favor of one con containing meat. The custom of meat-eating has continued to the present day though necessary for certain communities, such as the Eskimo, 
is a habit or conditioning that most of all the practice has continued for lack of awareness. In the last 50 years, however, recognized authorities in health, nutrition, and biochemistry have put forward ample evidence that meat eating is unnecessary for good health and shown that carnivorous diet or carnivorous-oriented diets is detrimental to human beings. The documentation for this can be freely researched, and there are many good books in, in telling the virtues of vegetarianism on And moreover, he states, meat eating today involves, for the animal, a long and cruel process of forced imprisonment, biological manipulation, transportation over long distances, crowded and unsanitary conditions, and finally, violent death in the slaughterhouse. And after that, the poor animals remain uh, the remains of the poor animals are eaten. The average person living today in the United States, Canada, and Australia consumes over 200 pounds of meat a year, while per capita meat consumption in Western Europe follows closer behind. In order to satisfy one's demand for meat, more than 4 billion cattle, calves, sheep, hogs, chickens, ducks, and turkeys are slaughtered each day. And during a 70-year period, which is an average lifetime, the most consumed by average Americans or Canadians involves the slaughter of approximately 11 cattle, one calf, three lambs and sheep, 23 hogs, 45 turkeys, 1,100 chickens, and some 862 pounds of fish. The amount of pain inflicted upon these creatures in order to provide meat for our pleasure is beyond calculation. And in addition, animals raised for slaughter consume large quantities of valuable grains and legumes, food that would otherwise feed millions of starving people around the world. For these and other reasons, many are turning to vegetarianism in America alone. And there are more, uh, some 10 million vegetarians. As the meat-based diet has grown in popularity over the years, a number of on the subject, and some of these explore the health reasons behind vegetarianism and point out how a vegetarian diet can help prevent heart attacks, strokes, cancer, and other diseases. Many books focus on the ecological, world food, and economic aspects of a meatless diet and show how to enjoy gourmet nutrition without having to spend a lot of money. Others describe how the plant kingdom is the primary source of vital nutrition and how vegetarian diets provide more than enough of the proteins, vitamins, and minerals we need each day. Still other books consider many of the ethical, moral, and philosophical reasons behind the vegetarian diet. Few works, however, have even attempted to tackle the difficult subject of vegetarianism and the world religion. Food for the Spirit is the first book to do so with depth 
and clarity. Drawing from a wealth of original religious documents and texts, author Stephen Rosen takes us on a fascinating journey back in time to explore the essential and often misunderstood roots of the world's majors, the world's major religious traditions. To discover how vegetarian was and cherished part of our philosophy and practice, he carefully examines and exposes many of the myths about Buddha, Muhammad praises be upon him, Jesus Christ praises be upon him, which have long been used to justify meat-eating on religious grounds. Food for the Spirit clearly shows that religious compassion was meant to be all-encompassing, directed towards animals as it is towards humans. In religious discussion, diet like sex is a controversial issue. Unlike other books which are either overly emotional or gloss over important matters of doctrine, Food for the Spirit probes carefully and logically the depths of each issue and explores its subject with honesty, clarity, and precision. This makes the book easy to read and also uncomfortable for many of the issues discussed in the following pages are considered sacred and have remained unquestioned by religiousness for centuries. Stephen Rawson's straightforward examination based on early manuscripts has appeared to popular and con contemporary translations in ancient traditions as distinct from later forms of religious expression is likely to undermine many dogmatically accepted beliefs and cause a great deal of debate and controversy. Food for the Spirit will give food for thought. The ideas in this book do not negotiate with the author, do not originate with the author. Rather, they are the same truths stressed by spiritual teachers throughout history. Religion has always taught, in essence, that reverence for all life is a high spiritual ideal and that universal brotherhood is the summit of genuine spirituality. And this little volume should go a long way towards establishing these goals, as quoted by Nathaniel Hoffman. Well, at this time, uh, I'm going to take a break, and when we return, I will start reading some succinct portions and excerpts of Food for the Spirit. matter 
because it definitely touches upon the essence of uh, something that's universally important to us, and that is to have a healthy body uh, so that we can uh, have a healthy spirit, healthy mind, and, and really explore and, and continue our journey uh, on this earth and the birth that we are experiencing right now as human beings, as, as brothers and sisters. So uh, I think nothing can be more important than this because without good health, of course, our journey is uh, stymied and, and uh, handicapped. So I'm so proud to have a wife who shares the, uh, the, the diet of vegetarianism, and she's been one for going on uh, over five years. And, and, of course, like myself, she's dull in and out and what have you, not necessarily falling off the wagon, but, you know, just not really having the, um, the wherewithal to really uh, formulate a, a, uh, a methodology and a way of uh, a system of maintaining a diet, a meatless diet. And when we met and got married, everything seemed to just fall in place, right? So, um, yes, it did. Um, <laughs> the healthy lifestyle is what it's all about. Absolutely. Health is wealth. You can't ah, do anything without your health. Yes, yes, we were saying that earlier this morning. Yes, and we're going to keep resume. saying it. We'll keep saying that, that. Health is worth wealth. Many of us have heard that term before, but it, it now it, it truly resonates with us, uh, the fact that, indeed, uh, there's many people who would sell everything all and give up all of their belongings and material wealth just to have uh, the benefits of re recouping their, their health. Yes. We've heard that time and time again. Those of us, of course, who are I've naive. been there. Oh, yes, that's right. My wife has been there. Yeah, she she miraculously going on almost twenty four months now. Came out twenty months. Twenty months. <laughs> Not that long. Yeah. Right. Approaching two years. December though. will be two years. Mm. Where you were challenged with uh, the the uh, discovery of you having diabetes, and you didn't know you had it for what five years. I, they I have no idea. They didn't really say. Uh huh. Say. But we knew that it was dormant for some while, and we didn't know that you had that condition. Well, it got to the point of you uh, being almost in a state of having a comatose. In the grave. In the grave, yeah. So we thank the Most High that uh, uh, Spirit Change is with us today, uh, healthy. She's just about, I'm proud to say, and that she is about 85, 85, 90% cured. It's, it's closer to 90. Closer to 90. We're cured from diabetes. And that's, uh, uh, as a result, direct result of your diet, your vegetarian diet, and, of course, supplements and other things, but, you know. I can't really attribute it to diet mm -hmm. because, as a vegetarian, I was eating a lot of sweets. Right, right. Because you know that, um, you know, people think, oh, you're vegetarian, you're automatically healthy, but not necessarily because if you don't eat meat or chicken or fish, and you pack in that cheesecake, that's oh, yeah. a problem. And if you're drinking um, Coca-Colas and drinking sodas, sodas and, and so forth, right? Kool-Aid and and other things that have fructose and corn syrup and and white sugar. But you know. what I what I will say mm -hmm. that vegetarian.
vegetarian, I think, is what kept me alive. Yes. If I had been a meat eater when I had that crisis, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have made it. Mm-hmm. Because I had one put in the grave as it was. Right. So I probably wouldn't have made it if I hadn't been vegetarian that way. Uh, uh-huh. I more than likely wouldn't have made it. Mm. Yes, indeed. But we have a lot to say in terms of diet and also uh, being proactive. And being grateful. And grateful. That's a key word. The most uh, important word I think we just said then was just being grateful. Because in a state of gratitude, the universe, the most high, will present to you what you need to be uh, to be healthy, to be happy, to be to be prosperous. All of those things come from the essence of you being grateful and acknowledging that indeed uh, this is a gift. I was given back the gift of my eyesight. That's awesome. Uh, I'm yeah. grateful every day. <laughs> and I'm I, here looking at the computer, and I can not only see the computer, but I can see the words, and I don't have my glasses on right now. And at one time you couldn't see the words. I could barely see the computer. Everything just looked like a bright white light. Mm-hmm. It didn't look like I couldn't distinguish the different items, the mm-hmm. different words or advertisements or anything like that. I couldn't see none of that. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't there. Yeah, so we're not just here to sit and talk about the vegetarian, at the benefits of having a vegetarian diet, but also to stress the importance of being careful, being in tune with what you eat. And and how you eat it, and and, and knowing that indeed that there are short-term and long-term ramifications from eating certain foods, you know certain things that you consume, uh, especially when you start off doing it as a young person, you know the body is very resilient and the immunizational system is is really ribbed up, and in, and it can balance and, and put in check those things that you take into your body that uh, it's able to call all the the cells that you have working on your behalf to keep you healed when you're afflicted with the the disease or to make you healthy. We have over 100, well, approximately 100 trillion cells make up our body. And there's a certain amount of cells that are called into action to attack anything that is a foreign in your body such as bacteria or a disease uh, cell. And that cell or those cells are assisted in repairing themselves. But as you get older, the the scenario has changed. You know, that whole dynamic has changed. Some of us greatly, most of us living in the Western Hemisphere, has changed drastically because we, we tend to not exercise sufficiently. We tend to not drink a sufficient amount of water. You know, a lot of us are dehydrated, and that's another conversation that I will share with you later on in the show and in uh, forthcoming shows uh, this week. Um, there's a whole world of knowledge, breadth of knowledge that needs to be inculcated into one's lifestyle and one's consciousness in order to maximize your health. So the vegetarian diet is just one aspect of the possibilities. And, of course, if you're not a vegetarian, you still can do certain things that can maximize uh, your health. So, 
that brings me now again to the book, Who um, for the Spirit. And I want to start uh, with the introduction. Um, and it just so happens that uh, Stephen starts off with a quote from Ecclesiastics. It's Ecclesiastics uh, chapter 3, verse number 19. For that which befalleth the son of men, or befalleth the sons of men, befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yes, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. Each day thousands of human beings are born, and each day thousands die. At times, the world appears to be a little more than a vast ocean of birth and death. Animals, too, struggle to remain afloat. And although our activities are like other, or should I say activities and the like may differ, our end is invariably the same in terms of mortality. Humans and animals are perfect equals. Human life does, of course, differ from other forms of life. And this is perhaps, perhaps best expressed in the human quest for spiritual knowledge. Man's pursuit of God, regardless of the particular traditions, separates him from animals. It is doubtful that an animal will pick up this book, for instance, even for a, curs a cursory glance. Although religious, religions diverge on points of theology and ritual, they unanimously agree on the need for moral codes and ethical principles. Implicit in these codes, codes and principles is the necessity of vegetarianism and compassion for animals. It is the purpose of this book to show that the world's major religions traditions, and their earliest adherents were indeed sympathetic towards the meatless way of life and in many cases emphasized vegetarianism. The issue of vegetarianism and religion is itself overshadowed by the religious hypocrisy which preaches, preaches brotherhood and human slaughter in the same breath. While mercy and compassion are qualities espoused by all religionists and many non-religionists, the world's major religions have done little to promote them. And indeed, we inflict violence and prejudice upon our neighbors, even as we direct the same toward the animal world. Religion, in first, and in fact, seems to instigate violence rather than eliminate it. The examples are numerous. The Crusades, the Inquisition, the perennial fighting in Northern Ireland between Catholics and Protestants, the endless hostility between the Jews and their Muslim neighbors, the Hindu-Muslim killings in, in the post-war India, the bloodshed between Sikhs and Hindus today, and of course, those of us of African descent, the various tribes and nations, that are constantly at war with one another. Some of it, of course, uh, 
espoused and promoted and inspired by the colonists and people from various parts of the world who infiltrate certain communities to control them and to divide and conquer. And that's a quote from Baba Wesley, the last uh, two sentences about those of us of African descent. And I must add, though, that Stephen says, apparently, despite the spiritual mandate for mercy and compassion, many religions exclude not only animals from this, but human beings from other religious traditions as well. Something is amiss. Ideally, religious temperament should run counter to intolerance. The qualities of love, mercy, and compassion, the avowed goals of all the major religious traditions are extolled. Hate, violence, and prejudice are condemned. While this is what religious religions preach in theory, in practice, this rarely has been the case. As noted, some of history's bloodiest battles have been fought on religious grounds. While this in and of itself does not invalidate organized religion, it makes us question how effectively religious institutions practice what they preach. If those who implement religion, the leaders, the philosophers, theologians, and avowed adherents are confused about the treatment of people from other religious traditions, but they then not also be confused about the treatment of animals. Have they perhaps drawn artificial limits on the scrape of mercy? While search limits are evident today, earlier forms of religions had a different story to tell. In fact, the further back we go in religious history, the more respect we find for life in all its forms. And quite naturally, vegetarianism played a part in this respect for all life. Islam, for instance, the youngest of the world's major religions, originated 1,300 years ago and is not a strong supporter of vegetarian indeed. Christianity, 2,000 years old, offers a lot more evidence for the practicality of the meatless way of life. And Judaism, about 4,000 years old, had a large tradition of vegetarianism. And one of the most ancient religions known, Hinduism, is a strong supporter of vegetarian principles. Buddhism and Jainism, while only 2,500 years old, are essentially Hindu paradoxes and so fully share the vegetarian principles upheld by their parent religion, often to a much greater degree. There are exceptions in, in to this rule, of course, and some modern denominations do indeed promulgate vegetarianism. You have Seventh-day Adventists, Quakers, and Mormons, for example. They have a, a meatless contingent. And while Sufis are an exception among the Muslims, the Ba'i faith also endorses vegetarianism, although meatless products are not strictly forbidden. There are exceptions, however, and in general, the above rule holds true. 
The older the religion, the closer to vegetarianism. Now, to many, the fact that the inner ancient religion traditions uphold the vegetarian ideal is proof that vegetarianism is a dated concept, a primitive ideal maintained by superstition or ignorance. To others, the antiquity of vegetarianism stands as a major indication of its primacy in religious thought. Before the purity of faith and doctrine are subjected to later revisions, misinterpretations, or accommodations, the earliest forms of religious expression fully accept vegetarianism. It is not always in practice then to at least in scriptural principle. Scriptures here define as those literary works on which the religious religions were originally founded, as opposed to later interpretive writings. Any explanation of scriptural teachings, including my own, is in one sense interpretive. However, since scriptures are held sacred by their respective followers, they should be understood as they are originally intended. And this book, Stephen says, therefore endeavors to remain and to remain as close to the original intent as possible by referring to primary sources and literal translations. One may compare and verify, for example, all Bible passages throughout this work by referring to Reuben Ockley's complete Hebrew-English dictionary for the Old Testament and to Nesli's interlinear Greek-English New Testament. Of course, people do not read their scriptures this way. The tendency is for believers to accept whatever edition or translation or original scripture their church happens to favor at any particular time. And most such popular editions are not translated rigorously or with a view towards understanding the original meaning of the text. The philosophical and theological problem with this, however, is considerable. The value of unaltered scripture is analogous to that of a computer manual. It goes without saying that the complicated apparatus as a computer needs an instruction booklet for further operation. In the complex universe we inhabit, scriptures act like instruction manuals guiding us through the intricacies of universal law and function. Further, where a man-made instructions manual may be imperfect and subject to revision, God's law books are definition, or should I say are by definition, they're absolute and eternal, and few differences according to time, place, and circumstance. Therefore, it can be shown that the original intent of the world's major religious scriptures was to encourage a meatless diet. And then this book contends that any person who even nominally claims to adhere to a particular faith cannot morally justify a non-vegetarian diet. I'm going to take a short break at this point and come back to further explain, or should I say share the thoughts that Stephen Rosen has as pertaining to the scientific perspective of what we just read. Thank you, and we'll be back within a moment.
an interesting uh, segment, interesting part of the book that I just read, and I've come to mind thinking of uh, the fact that many of conversations that I've had with those who uh, practice various religions would state that, yes, uh, uh, the prophet said this, said that, and that they led a certain lifestyle with regard to what was eaten, uh, consumed, and meat was definitely uh, part of the diet. And then I've heard and read that meat back in those days was not really pertaining towards animal, but actually to food, uh, veggies and and fruit, bread. Uh, so there's a lot to say in terms of what Stephen shares about doing the research and really getting in depth and doing the homework and and understanding what the scriptures are indicating, which I'm just, you know, really getting familiar with uh, on a very in-depth level. So later on this week, we hope to have more dialogue, people calling in, expressing their thoughts about this, and those, preferably those who have differences of opinions, so that there can be some healthy dialogue generated, because that's the way that we come to, uh, I think, exploring and coming to, if not scientific conclusions, but at least uh, coming to a, 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 a point of reference where one can make more of an intelligent decision in terms of one's direction, such as in this case, embracing a diet of vegetarianism. Hello, my my. my Companion, I see you're enjoying. You had a good dinner. Yes, I did. And uh, enjoying dessert, and a very healthy one. I may add. We here at home, we have conditioned ourselves to. As my wife mentioned earlier, we used to eat cakes and all kinds of pastries, and even ice cream for that matter, as a dessert. But now we found out that there, there's this a multitude of uh, different types of food that's prepared without sugar, uh, without additives, without preservatives, which uh, tastes just as good as the food that we were eating before that had these uh, ingredients that were not healthy. So, again, uh, that's something that I encourage uh, the listeners, those of you who are really resonating with what I'm sharing with you, to do your own homework, to do your research, and not be complacent about uh, the types of food and the type of diet that you have. Again, it doesn't have to be that you become a vegetarian, you know, but if you are eating meat and you do incorporate a certain diet that, that incorporates uh, red meat and fish and what have you, to try and eat the, what we call the prime, as it were, and, and then eat less and less, and, of course, if you're eating those foods that have uh, uh, white flour, uh, white sugar, uh, using oil, lard, or margarine, that you get into using butter, you know, uh, extra virgin oil, olive oil, and just a, a host of things that one can use to just enhance uh, your diet and the, the practice of how you cook your food. Uh, indeed, uh, there's certain principles of steaming your vegetables as opposed to boiling 
uh, you know, vegetables, um, and eating them with then uh, not not saving it in the refrigerator for more than two or three days, because by then it's lost its nutrients, and, and you're just eating, uh, you know, matter for that matter. It's not giving your body any, any nutrition. So there's a lot to say about how not only what we eat, but how long we keep it uh, before we eat it again, or should I say, eat the remnants. Um, buying fruit from the grocery store, uh, from the produce, and placing it in the refrigerator can be a, a problem if you leave it in there too long. And of course, we've been conditioned to think that if it doesn't look um, rotten and have a smell and, and have a taste, then it must be okay. But I recently learned it that's in the refrigerator, to say nothing about it being on top of the stove and uncovered and what have you, but in uh, a day, two days the most in the refrigerator, that it has lost its nutritional value. So uh, sometimes I guess some foods need to be frozen right away, and that might uh, uh, hold the nutrients in animation until it's thawed out. So research has to be done on that. Uh, I have some knowledge, and of course I must preface it to say that anything that I share with you, I'm not a medical doctor or a nutritionist. I, I'm a student, like you are as well, of uh, how to maintain a healthy diet, maintain a healthy body. So uh, all this is just uh, our observations, and uh, of course before you incorporate any new uh, diet, in your life, uh, consult your, your doctor, uh, a medical expert, before embarking. So, again, uh, to go further now within the book of Food for the Spirit, I'm going to now read um, what Stephen shares about a scientific perspective. Before any discussion of the religions and moral rationale or moral rationale for vegetarianism, an examination of the scientific reasons for avoiding flesh as a final source of food should be given. Modern medicine offers ample evidence of the dangers of meat-eating. Cancer and heart disease are nearly epidemic in various nations, with a high per capita consumption of meat where they rarely occur in societies where little meat is consumed. There is also considerable scientific evidence that the teeth, the jaws, and the long convoluted intestinal canal in humans are not naturally suited to a diet containing meat. The value of this evidence is the present context is that vegetarianism on purely abstract or philosophical grounds rarely lasts. Without an awareness of the dietary facts, even the most ardent religionists are apt to adopt a meat-oriented diet. On the other hand, however, it would be incomplete to adhere to a meatless diet without understanding its deeper meaning humanity. Now let us briefly outline in the remaining portion of the introduction a few of the secular practical reasons for the vegetarian way of life. The protein myth. 
The fear of protein deficiency is why many people never adopt a vegetarian diet. One can get good quality proteins and all the, that one needs from a non-meat diet, they ask. Before answering this question, let us first define protein. So Stephen says that in, in 1838, a Dutch chemist, Sorok and Mother, claimed and incorporated a substance containing nitrogen, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and other trace elements. He showed that this chemical compound to be the basis of all life. And he named it protein, meaning first rank. It has been subsequently proven that protein is biologically essential and that every living organism must a certain amount to be able to survive. And this, it was found, is due to the fact that proteins are composed of amino acids, which are the building blocks of life. Plants can synthesize amino acids from air, earth, and water, but animals are dependent on plants for protein, either directly by eating plants or indirectly by eating an animal which has eaten and metabolized plants. Only the vegetable kingdom is capable of producing protein. Thus, humans have the option of obtaining it directly from or directly great efficiency from plants are indirectly and at great expense, both financially and in terms of resources consumed from animal flesh. One reason for the latter's highest cost is that the animal has been forced to eat a tremendous amount of vegetable proteins in order to reach slaughter weight. There are thus no amino acids in flesh that animals do not derive from plants, or that humans cannot also derive from plants. And moreover, he states, eating foods from the plant kingdom has the added advantage of combining amino acids with other substances that are essential to the proper utilization of protein, carbohydrates, vitamins, minerals, enzymes, hormones, chlorophyll, and other elements that only plants can supply. Vegetarians should know, however, of the theory of food combining, which some scholars say is essential if one wishes to obtain complete proteins. This concept, better known as protein complementarity, was popularized by Frances Moore Lepel in her best-selling book, Diet for a Small Planet. And that's uh, Frances Moore Lappy, which is L-A-P-P hyphen E. Again, her book titled Diet for a Small Planet, where she explains contemporary proteins are usually put together as a matter of course in a balanced vegetarian diet. If we cut, if we eat peanut butter, for example, we smear it on some bread, and this is how one generally eats peanut butter. And if we use whole grain bread, we would have a generous amount of protein. And here's how this works. And I must add that my wife and I just recently uh, started eating pumpernickel bread. So, yes, whole wheat, whole grain bread, 
pumpernickel, all these types of, of bread that have grains, whole grains, are the best types of bread to eat, as opposed to those breads that are made from white flour. Again, to be discussed in a later uh, segment. When we eat, the body breaks the protein down into constituent amino acids, and they are either utilized individually or reassembled into new protein needed by the body. There are 22 known amino acids, 14 are non-essential, and 8 are essential. Essential meaning simply that we cannot manufacture them naturally without the body and must get them from our food. And by the way, I must add, which I didn't earlier in the show, that the one of the benefits of our show is that by me reading certain books such as Food for the Spirit, I'm actually facilitating those who are not able to read, number one, those who are challenged because of poor eyesight, eyesight who are not able to read, and then, of course, those who are confined to a bed and uh, are re recuperating or recovering and going through some type of challenge which does not allow them to read books such as what I'm reading tonight. That is one of the benefits of me uh, airing this show, is to service those individuals. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, to pick certain books which I deem to be uh, worthy of being reviewed and shared so that they can be a healthy, no pun intended, healthy dialogue uh, between those of you who are listening this evening and in future shows and, of course, those who I invite as guest speakers on our show. So I just wanted to uh, uh, take a pause to share those thoughts with you in terms of why uh, I feel that uh, this show is being a service and, and satisfying a great need within throughout the world community who are connected through Blog Talk Radio. Now, Stephen continues by saying that the essential amino acids are uh, lexine, isolatine, valine, lysine, and tripopulpin, theramine, and a host of other uh, chemical-based uh, substances. And all of these must appear, according to Lappe, in any given meal in the right proportions to have a well-balanced diet. And for this reason, up to the mid-1950s, meat was considered an excellent source of protein. It has all the eight essential amino acids in the proper proportions, but nonetheless, nutritionists now agree that many vegetarian foods are equal to, if not better than, meat in terms of protein content. For these foods contain all eight amino acids as well. In general, the rule for producing high-protein vegetarian dishes is to combine grains, breads, pasta, etc., with legumes, soybeans, lentils, peanuts, etc., at the same meal as is done with the previously mentioned peanut butter sandwich. Nuts and seeds combined with legumes or even with cereals also provide a high-protein diet. And if milk products are included in the diet, there is even less chance 
of a protein problem. For milk also contains all the essential amino acids. It also has been determined that many green leafy vegetables and even potatoes have a considerable amount of complete protein, and an 8-ounce glass of carrot juice has the same qualities and amount of protein as an egg. So we've established the fact that from a scientific perspective that many of the uh, meats that we have been conditioned to eat, yes, they have protein and they have trace, they have the amino acids and so forth, but it is proven that even having a vegetarian diet can uh, afford you with having even a more healthier diet which produces and supplies the body with equal, if not more, uh, protein and amino acids in a well-balanced matter. So that leads me also to think in terms of how the fast food industry has um, become a, a, a mainstay within various families, especially here in the Western Hemisphere, where the majority of families uh, who have... Uh, both parents who work or the children are being raised by a single parent, uh, and even, of course, those who are single, are inclined to want to have fast food um, uh, diets incorporated into their lifestyle. Now, not to say there's nothing wrong with having a fast food diet, provided that you're eating food that is nutritious and has a proper balance of protein amino acids and all vitamins and, and essential uh, ingredients that are needed for a healthy, uh, maintaining a healthy body. But by and large, many of us who uh, are not mindful do not keep that in mind in terms of how to maintain a healthy diet, fast food or slow food diet, uh, nevertheless. So... I'm just so excited about the fact that we've touched upon this subject, that uh, we have an opportunity to, to give this food for thought, pun intended, so that indeed we can, in this lifetime, this generation, begin to share this knowledge amongst us that a vegetarian diet is a diet that one should consider as an uh, option in terms of having a healthy lifestyle. I'm going to take a brief, another last break, and when I return, I will complete that particular chapter that we started by Stephen Rawson, the book titled Food for the Spirit.
Yes, yes. Um, I'm just really encouraged to uh, know that as the Most High inspires me, that I'm able to convey that energy and translate that energy with the knowledge of material such as this that touches upon the essence of food for the spirit, food for the body. Um, regardless of uh, what diet we embrace, that we are encouraged to eat as healthy as possible. And I say that again, to eat as healthy as possible, to uh, drink at least eight glasses of water per day. I have uh, information that I'll share with you at the next show uh, that I've shared on blogs, talk uh, last week and Facebook that um, an email from friends that there's this particular school of thought that claims that drinking water with sea salt is uh, a very beneficial way of uh, maintaining a healthy body. Uh, first thing in the morning, just before you eat a meal, and just before you retire at night for sleep, that uh, this water and sea salt can assist in avoiding of heart attack and and um, stroke, and of course uh, maximize the function of all the organs within the body, uh, and balancing the, the amount of water that's needed for the blood to be in its healthiest state. So that there's a lot, a lot of information that I will be sharing with you uh, in future shows, and again the, the piece about water. Uh, I hope to have that included on my website. Uh, my site is drumsatchange.com, and um, you will be able to go to that site and, and, and extract uh, portions of, uh, um, access portions of, of to you in terms of the books that I've featured. And, of course, you can go to the archives here at blogtalkradio.com. Uh, forward slash grassroots holistic health and going to the archives uh, of all the shows that I've done in the past, especially this one, which I'm sure will uh, be a resource for many of you who are listening and those who will share this information to. So um, I shall continue. He states in Meat Eating and World Hunger... Consider the following statistics. 1,000 acres of soybean yields 1,124 pounds of usable protein. 1,000 acres of rice yields 938 pounds of usable protein. 1,000 acres of corn yields 1,009 pounds of usable protein. 1,000 acres of wheat yields 1,043 pounds of usable protein. Now consider this, Stephen says, that 1,000 acres of soybeans, corn, rice, and wheat, when fed to a steer, being a cow, will yield only 125 pounds of usable protein. These and other findings point to a disturbing conclusion that meat-eating is directly related to world hunger. And some nutritionists and environmentalists and politicians have pointed out that if the United States were to feed 
that same grain and soy supply to the poor and starving people of the world as is fed to livestock, we would wipe out starvation and its corollary horrors, in fact, throughout the world. Harvard nutritionist John Mayer estimates that reducing meat production by just 10% would release enough grain to feed 60 million people. It is a matter of record in terms of land, water, and resources that meat is the most expensive and inefficient food anyone can eat. Only about one, uh, only about 10% of the protein and calories that we feed to livestock is returned to the meat those animals provide. In addition, hundreds of thousands of acres of arable land are occupied in raising livestock for food. One acre used to raise a steer provides only about one pound of protein. The same one acre Planned, planted with soybeans would produce 17 pounds of protein. In short, raising animals for food is a tremendous waste of the world's resources. In addition to the loss of farmland, it is estimated that raising livestock consumes eight times more water than growing vegetables, soybeans, or grains. For the cattle must drink and the crops that feed them must be watered. In summary, millions would continue to die of thirst or starvation, while a privileged crew consume vast amounts of protein, wasting land and water in the process. And ironically, this same meat is their own body's worst enemy. I continue by stating that he says that meat eating and poor health when an animal is slaughtered, the waste produces normally taken away from the animal's bloodstream or retained in the decaying flesh. Meat eaters absorb their own body and toxic wastes that would otherwise have been expelled from the animal's body as urine. Dr. Oren Parnay, in his paper, Why, Do, Why I Don't Eat Meat, notes that when steak is boiled, waste is the soluble extract in the form of beef tea, which closely resembles urine when chemically analyzed. Meat in industrialized nations that practice extensive agriculture is also loaded with preservatives, such as DDT, arsenic used in cattle feed as a growth enhancer, and stimulant, sodium sulfite used to give meat that fresh red color, and DES, a synthetic hormone that is known a known carcinogen. In fact, meat producers and meat products include many agents that are either carcinogenic uh, metastasizers, uh, metastasizers of cancer. For instance, in just over two pounds of charcoal broiled steak, there is as much as benzerine as contained in the smoke from 600 cigarettes. As a famous Christian theologian and practicing vegetarian, Dr. D.H. Kellogg once 
remarked when he sat down to a colorful vegetarian dinner, it's nice to eat a meal and not have to worry about what your food may have died of. Perhaps the single most compelling argument for a non-meat diet, at least as far as personal growth health goes, is the undeniable and well-documented correlation between meat eating and heart disease. In America, the highest meat-consuming nation in the nation in the world, one person out of every two will die of heart or related vascular diseases. This disease, or should I say, these diseases are practically non-existent in cultures where meat consumption is low. The Journal of the American Medical Association respond, reported in 1961 that a vegetarian diet can prevent 90 to 97% of heart disease. Since a non-meat diet lessens cholesterol intake, there is less of a chance of fat buildup and thus death from a stroke or a heart attack. The condition known as arteriosclerosis is virtually unknown in the vegetarian world, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Protein contained from nuts, pulses, grains, and even dairy products is said to be relatively pure as compared with beef, which has a 56% impure water content. Such impurity affects not only the heart, but the whole human organism. The human body is a complex machine, and like all machines, some fuels are more appropriate than others to keep it running smoothly. The record shows that meat is a very inefficient fuel for the human machine, one that eventually exacts a severe toll. Eskimos, for example, who live primarily on meat and fish, age rapidly. Their average lifespan rarely exceeds 30 years. The King Kerchis, an Eskimo Russian people that is one time lived cheaply on meat, rarely survived past the age of 40. On the other hand, there are tribes such as the Hamsa, who live in the Himalayan mountains, or groups like the Seventh-day Adventists, a primary vegetarian Christian group, who tend to live between 80 and 100 years. Researchers cite vegetarianism as a reason for their excellent health and longevity. The Maya Indians of Yucatan and the Yemitite tribe of Hispanic origin are also known for their excellent health and a low meat or in some cases 100% vegetarian diet is again cited as the main contributory factor. So, thus that ends uh, the segment of our show this evening reading from uh, Food for the Spirit by Stephen Rawson. I hope that what I've read has inspired and given you uh, information and educated you and added to your uh, uh, dialogue, inner dialogue and conversation with others that the uh, importance of meat is something to be considered. Um uh, importance of a meatless diet, rather, is something to be considered. So I thank you all for tuning in this evening, and I look forward to uh, continuing the show. As a matter of fact, I will be continuing the show uh, tomorrow at the same time at 8.30, and uh, the show will be uh, 
tomorrow, um, starting at 8.30, and will last for an hour. And we look forward to getting through the book before the end of the week. I welcome, of course, any comments that you may have. Please go to uh, my website again at uh, drumsofchange.com. And, of course, feel free to message me on my uh, uh, blog talk station at uh, Grassroots Holistic Health. So until then, I bid you farewell. I uh, thank my wife again for uh, uh, sharing her thoughts on the show. And um, I thank the Most High for uh, allowing the show to take place and giving me the energy and the work all to uh, share this book with you. I thank my elders. I thank the, the angels, the guardians, the rishas, all the deities that are of the invisible world who uh, are constantly guiding me and, and protecting me and showing me what uh, my purpose is and how to uh, follow with uh, executing the, the service to the Most High and to you, my listeners. Again, thank you. Namaste.